Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In the name of Jesus, amen. Marriage is how the Lord builds the house. In order to continue his creation, he gives Adam, the first man, dominion over his creation. Adam, who is made in God's image, is God's proxy and representative, the one who images God to the rest of creation. Adam exercises this dominion by fulfilling the first command that he gives them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Of course, Adam cannot do this alone. Therefore, it's not good that he is alone. So God makes for him a woman, a helper fit for him, one who is opposite yet the same, a complementary counterpart. Eve is essential to creation, to dominion. Without her, Adam is incomplete. He cannot do what God has given him to do. And that's why when God brings Eve to Adam, he is delighted, saying at last, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And because man and woman are made for each other, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the definition of marriage. That is the Lord's institution. That is how he builds the house. And if it's not done his way, then whoever embarks on this thing called life in this creation does so in vain. Marriage is good. It's holy. It's true. It's beautiful. It is God's design. It is the way that he builds and fills and procreates this earth with those creatures that bear his name, his image, and likeness. The devil sought to dismantle this building, and he was successful. Adam let his wife, his helper, be deceived and seduced. He did not protect her. He did not guard her. He did not preach God's word and truth to her. But likewise, he was deceived, and sin enters in creation. And then right away, Adam and Eve are pitted against one another, blaming everyone else but themselves, and they are separated by their sin. But God keeps them together. Marriage is still good. Even after sin, God sustains their marriage with the promise of the Christ, of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reconcile sinful man back to God. And so now every marriage is guarded by the same thing, this promise of Christ who is himself the true bridegroom, who makes his church to be his holy bride, forgiven, rescued, and promised life eternal with him in his kingdom that has no end. The ancient Greeks 
would refer to those outside of their culture as barbarians. And it started because those who were not Greeks had a different language and a different dialect, and so the Greeks would say, they just say, bar, 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 right? So they came to call them barbarians. But now, of course, the term has come to generally mean any group or people who is primitive or uncivilized. And this is what you think of when you hear the word barbarian, right? That these are the groups that just kind of wreak havoc and plow through towns and villages and lay waste to everything and pillage and plunder and burn, right? And they don't actually have any aim to build something better or to do something, right? They're just merely surviving. And in the process, they just destroy, lay waste to everything in their path. Now, in a very real sense, our culture and the air we breathe is barbaric. Think about it. How can one build a house when we literally murder our children before they're even born? How can one build a house according to God's good and true design when it is outright rejected that God made them and that he made them male and female from the beginning? Indeed, how can we build a house when it is asserted and maintained that men and women are no, are no different? Or that a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man if he so chooses? How can one build a house when marriage is so cheapened to just a mere social contract? When a man can just drive down to the courthouse and separate what God has joined together by filing for a no-fault divorce, and within 90 days a marriage is over for no other reason than that one or both of the parties say, well, I don't want to be married anymore. This is barbaric. It does not build. It only destroys. And if it builds, it does so in vain. Because it does not seek to have dominion over God's creation. It does not seek to be proxies and representatives of images of God procreating and loving and nurturing children and being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth all according to God's design. And just look around in our world. We're just reaping what we've sown. This is why misery and heartache abound, because we are building houses in vain. This is not unique to us. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had taken Moses' allowance for divorce, so the Bible does give just causes for divorce. We call these sometimes the biblical reasons for divorce, so adultery or abandonment, right? And But the Jews had taken this to make sort of a blanket allowance. So you've got examples you can hear sometimes of Men in the first century, Jews, who would divorce their wives because she overcooked the roast or because she looked at him cross, right? So Jesus tells us that Moses wrote this commandment because of the hardness of heart, the hardness of our sinful hearts. 
because marriage is not meant to be broken ever. The Lord's house, marriage, is not meant to be dismantled or destroyed ever. Our Lord makes that abundantly clear. So his disciples were curious about this matter, perhaps in part because divorce was so commonplace in their culture. And so they do what good disciples do. They ask their Lord to teach them more. And Mark may, makes an important move here in this passage. Jesus moves from the outside where the crowds are, where the unbelievers and the Pharisees are mixed with the disciples. And then they go into the house, into the church where the believers and disciples are. And what does Jesus do there in the church? Well, he doubles down and he tells his disciples that those who divorce their spouse and marry another commit adultery. He doesn't say, oh yeah, well, those Pharisees and unbelievers out there, they're the bad ones, but not you guys. You're the believers, the good ones, right? No, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And he speaks this harsh word of law, doubling down and undoubtedly convicting and accusing even those believers in the house that day. That is what the law does. Convicts and accuses and leaves us, yes, even believers and disciples, with no excuse. There are undoubtedly believers in this house today who are convicted and accused by these words of Jesus. And that is why Jesus does what he does and says what he says next. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Little children are frequently disobedient. Little children willfully and deliberately sin against their parents quite often. And you've seen it before when a child does something wrong and then is disciplined for it. After a while, after they throw a tantrum or a fit, they calm down and they might weep or fall into the arms of their mother or father. And they feel remorse for their action, yeah, in part, but what deeply saddens and strikes them is that they know that they disappointed the person that they love and depend upon the most. This is how Jesus is with you. He receives you as little children. In fact, he says, if you do not receive him or become like a child and receive him as a child, then you shall by no means enter his kingdom. You have sinned against the Lord. You have broken his commands. You have been deliberately and willfully disobedient. And yes, we have all thrown tantrums and fits. We have all refused to acknowledge that we've sinned, trying to justify ourselves, putting off repentance. 
But today in the Lord's house, it's time for us to calm down from our fit and become like remorseful children and to look upon the one that we can depend upon the most. Repent. You have disappointed God. You have sinned against his commands. But your Lord Jesus loves you in spite of that. He takes you in his arms and blesses you like a child, laying his hands on you, forgiving your sin, covering you in his righteousness. He does not hinder you, but gladly and freely gives you his kingdom. That's what he, the founder of your salvation, willingly and deliberately did by the suffering of his death. You are forgiven for the barbarism, for the destruction that has been brought about because of your sin. The Lord does not count this against you, but instead has put all of our barbaric sins on the body of his Son, who bore them on the cross in order to rise again for our forgiveness, for our life, for our salvation. That is the gospel. That is the source of your life, the source of your faith. Therefore, as Hebrews tells us today, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We'll be in the book of Hebrews in our epistle reading in the coming weeks. Hebrews was written to early Jewish Christians who were considering abandoning the faith and returning to Judaism. Judaism was a state-sanctioned religion which one could participate in with fewer negative legal ramifications, whereas Christianity brought persecution. So the author of this epistle is writing to encourage these Jewish believers, once Jews, now Christians. He's encouraging them not to abandon the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, namely Christ. Now the state-sanctioned religion of our day is not Judaism, and it's not Christianity. It is humanism, progressivism, godlessness. Call it what you will, right? St. Paul calls it the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age builds in vain. So it does not assert, but rather denies, for one, that God is creator and that he has, from the beginning, made us male and female, but instead teaches the opposite. <laughs> it does not assert, but rather denies that marriage, as God instituted it, is good and true and beautiful, but instead asserts promiscuity, sexual license and freedom, and defining marriage and family according to our own terms, however we see fit. Now, it's tempting to go along with all of this and drift away. 
it's easier to comply with these cultural norms than it is to be labeled a bigot or intolerant or a hater. But God tells us clearly in his word how he builds his house and how he sustains creation. And that the alternative is barbaric. That it doesn't build, it only destroys. God has shown us a better way. And we, believers, are called to defend that truth, even if it means persecution. And while that might sound daunting, Hebrews reminds us today that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. As we look around, it just seems like chaos, disorder, destruction, that things are out of control, and that the world has gone mad. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Everything seems out of control, but it's not. Because Jesus is in control. He's in his heavens. And everything is in subjection to him. And we, the little children of God, have come to the Lord's house to hear his word, to be forgiven and blessed by him. And by the suffering of his death, by his cross and passion, he has won for us salvation. He has restored creation, and we look forward to that new creation in the life of the world to come. And he, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, has been made like you in every respect, so that he can help you when you are being tempted. Because he says of you, his beloved bride, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Christian, for she was taken out of Christ. And he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never divorce you. He will never tear apart or separate what he has brought about by his dying and rising. He joins himself to you in the water of your baptism and gives you his name and that baptism flows from his rib, the water into the font, and the chalice filled with his blood that he gives you today to drink. He's your savior, your bridegroom, for better or for worse. And because not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, you are his for all eternity in the house that he builds. In the name of Jesus. Amen.